daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China and Venezuela have elevated their relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership. Cambodian Prime Minister Humane is in China on his first official trip abroad since taking office. China has released a proposal on the reform and development of global governance. Meanwhile, Beijing expresses serious concerns and a strong dissatisfaction on the European Union's decision to launch an anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electric vehicles. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China and Venezuela have elevated their relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership ahead of the 50th anniversary of bilateral diplomatic ties next year. Chinese President Xi Jinping made the announcement when meeting with his Venezuelan counterpart Nicolas Maduro in Beijing. China has always approached its relationship with Venezuela from a strategic and long-term perspective. We will continue to support Venezuela in maintaining its national sovereignty, dignity and social stability. We stand firmly by Venezuela in its fight against external interference. I'm pleased to announce the elevation of our relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership. Xi Jinping has also congratulated Venezuela for becoming the first Latin American country to join the China-led International Lunar Research Station in July. Both sides signed multiple cooperation agreements spanning various sectors. So to delve into this cooperation between China and Venezuela, joining us on the line is Professor Jiang Shixue, Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Jiang. Okay, thank you. All-weather strategic partnership, how significant is this upgrade of China-Venezuela ties, and how has it fit into the historical context of their relations? Well, uh, as far as I know, China has established uh, 120 different uh, partnerships with uh, different countries. And uh, there are very, very different uh, levels or names of these partnerships. Uh, the most common name would be a strategic partnership. Then uh, one level higher than the uh, commonly known as strategic partnership would be a comprehensive uh, uh, strategic uh, partnership. And then uh, one, one level further higher would be the always uh, uh, strategic partnership. So I think... Uh, the current uh, strategic partnership between China and Venezuela will be the uh, one of the one of the highest, uh, according to our uh, definition. Could you please elaborate more on this relationship? How how historical contacts of China Venezuela relationship lead to this upgrade? China's relationship with, uh, with Venezuela has been uh, moving forward. Uh, very rapidly and smoothly over the uh, past uh, several decades, or, or we should say since the two sides established a diplomatic relationship. So for so, so many years, uh, the two countries have cooperated in many, many fields, political, economic, and uh, uh, people-to-people exchanges. Uh, now, uh, and now and in the near future, I believe that uh, China-Venezuela will focus on um, probably on trade and investment. Uh, of course, at the same time, the two will continue to push forward the cooperation in other fields, as I said, that uh, political and uh, people-to-people or cultural uh, exchanges. So uh, one thing is certain that uh, the two sides will make uh, more efforts to continue to push forward this kind of uh, uh, always uh, uh, strategic partnership. 
The BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, has been a significant aspect of China-Venezuela cooperation. A lot of new cooperation has been signed under this framework. Then what specific new projects and areas of collaboration covered by the BRI do you think should be highlighted? You know, in the, in the past uh, several years, or even we can say over the past uh, two decades, the economy in Venezuela is not so good, or I would say it's in, in a crisis. Uh, so, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, China can uh, offer certain kind of help for Venezuela to uh, push forward its economic growth. And this kind of economic difficulties can be attributed to uh, two reasons. One is the uh, American sanction against Venezuela. And secondly, uh, its uh, its economy heavily depends on the oil sector. So we often say uh, its economy has suffered from a kind of a, uh, the so-called Dutch disease. It's... Uh, uh, it's an economics uh, textbook uh, terminology. That means the economy is is terrible because of the heavy dependence on the oil sector. So now we are going to see that uh, China's uh, Belt Road Initiative uh, can help um, to make more investment, to expand the trade relationship with China. And uh, uh, regarding the sectors, I think... Uh, uh, the most important uh, sector will be the infrastructure. Mm. Because of the uh, crisis, uh, its infrastructure is quite uh, poor. And uh, also, uh, I think agriculture uh, is also uh, a sector which needs more investment. Um, because its economy is not well structured. So Venezuela has been importing food and other kinds of basic needs from foreign countries. So, so, so I hope that China can help Venezuela to deal with all kinds of economic problems and difficulties. One cooperation notable is the Venezuela's participation in the China-led International Lunar Research Station, and both sides agreed to further deepen cooperation in the field of aerospace. What opportunities and benefits does this collaboration bring to both countries and the broader international community? Well, uh, in, in terms of technology, uh, I don't believe that Venezuela really can offer a very important uh, helping hand. Okay, although although uh, there is a space research uh, uh, lab or, or or space research center over there, uh, but because of the economic problems, so its uh, its technology is a somewhat backward. However. Uh, Venezuela can help, can make a greater contributions to this kind of program because Venezuela is located in a very important geographical location. You know, if you want to launch uh, some kind of satellite or make researches about the space, you have to put different uh, uh, observatory posts in different locations around the world. So if we, if we can uh, set up a, a certain kind of, uh, uh, this kind of post to, uh, to make observation about the satellite, so that would be good. So in, in this sense, I think Venezuela can make really greater contributions to, uh, to, uh, to China's efforts to push forward this kind of uh, uh, South-South cooperation in the field of technology. Professor, during the meeting between the two leaders, President Xi Jinping spoke about China's reform and opening up, and President Maduro mentioned learning from Shenzhen's development experiences. How do you think Venezuela can benefit from China's development model and experience, especially in the context of special economic zones? You know, uh, uh, every country has its unique uh, uh, characteristics in terms of uh, economic development. 
And China is considered as the, uh, one of the most successful stories in terms of economic growth. So I believe that Venezuela can really uh, learn something from China's uh, 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 push for pushing forward the economic growth rate. Uh, some people say that Venezuela's economy is is state-led. That means the, the government plays a very important role in the economy. Well, this is this is not unnecessary. But I think Venezuela can learn something from China by stimulating the role of the market. So if possible, I think that Venezuela can set up some kind of a special economic zone so that uh, uh, this zone can attract more foreign investment to help the government to push forward economic development. So this is uh, uh, learning by doing or doing by learning. Professor, the two sides spoke highly of the important role of the China and the community of Latin American and Caribbean states forum. How do you evaluate the Venezuela's role in Latin American and Caribbean affairs and its contribution to the ongoing development of cooperation between China and the region? We have to say that Venezuela is one of the uh, important uh, countries uh, in Latin America. So Venezuela can or should play a more important role in this forum. But, you know, uh, because of the uh, internal disunity within Latin America, okay, so some countries do not like Venezuela. uh, And a few years ago, Brazil or some other countries, Peru or some other countries even uh, did did some kind of uh, sanctions against Venezuela following the U.S. policy. So I hope that uh, there will be a kind of more internal unity uh, within the forum, okay? So China will be happy to see that uh, Venezuela and other countries will get more united uh, towards um, a better goal in terms of pushing forward uh, political consolidation, democratic consolidation, or economic growth, all kinds of things. Professor, earlier you mentioned the United States has imposed economic sanctions and coercive measures on Venezuela in years. President Maduro's visit to China is seen as an effort to strengthen economic ties with the rest of the world. How do you view his strategy to mitigate the economic challenges and continue to uh, contribute to Venezuela's economic recovery and uh, stability? The U.S. has been... uh uh, imposing uh, tough sanctions against Venezuela, along with some other countries like uh, like uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, or some other countries. So uh, Venezuela, as I just now said, has, has suffered a lot. Well, regarding China's relationship with Venezuela, we have to point out that this kind of bilateral relationship between China and Venezuela does not target against any other third party, okay? So the U.S. should not show any concern about the development of China's relationship with Venezuela. Mm. I, I would suggest that the U.S. should continue to act uh, in a genuine sense to lose its or even eliminate its sanctions against uh, Venezuela. Now, uh, since the uh, the Russia-Ukrainian uh, conflict, in terms of its uh, energy needs, the U.S. has allowed one of the American companies to go to uh, to to go into the oil market in Venezuela. That's a kind of an encouraging sign. But uh, I still wish to say that uh, the U.S. should do more to eliminate 100% its uh, sanctions against Venezuela. Thanks, Professor, for your valuable insights into the evolving China-Venezuela partnership and its broader implication for China and Latin American cooperation. That's Professor Jiang Shixue, Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. 
Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Manet is in China on his first official trip abroad since taking office last month. This year marked the 65th anniversary of bilateral diplomatic ties and the year of China-Cambodia friendship. A statement by Cambodia's foreign ministry says the Prime Minister is scheduled to discuss with Chinese leaders tightening relations for a shared future with the building of Cambodia-China community, strategic directions for their bilateral relations, and regional and international matters. So for more on this topic, let's have Dr. Digby Ren, Special Senior Advisor at International Relations Institute of Cambodia, the Royal Academy of Cambodia. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ren. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you. Thank you and your listeners. Dr. Ren, the China trip is the first official visit by the new Cambodian Prime Minister since he was sworn in. Why did he choose China for his first official visit? Oh, I think it's very important. Um, The ASEAN-China relationship is the largest economic relationship in the world today and critically important. And of course, uh, Cambodia is a key member, of course, of ASEAN. And so within that framework, that's clearly the first port of call for the new prime minister. And of course, it's the 65th anniversary of diplomatic relations between China and Cambodia. And so that gives the that gives it added impetus. And China, of course, is the largest investor in the country. As you mentioned, this year also marked the 65th anniversary of the establishment of China-Cambodia diplomatic ties and also the year of China-Cambodia friendship. What's your assessment on the historical context and development of this relationship and how it has shaped the current state of bilateral ties? Well, um, I've been reminded many times that Cambodia and China have had uh, diplomatic or sorry relations of some kind since at least the 13th century so you know it's, that's quite a lot of long time uh, but in the modern era of course uh, that has been a very productive relationship over the last 30 40 years uh, especially uh, after you know post-conflict society like Cambodia this has been a critical relationship and I think uh, you can see that if anybody who's been to Cambodia would realize that there has been annualized growth about seven or seven and a half percent GDP growth for the last decade, more than a decade. Uh, and it's really transformed society here. And that relationship with China has been so much a part of that. But it's, you know, Cambodia also keeps a very balanced relationship. It's very neutral in its uh, uh, foreign relations and keeps a good relationship with all of its uh, large trading partners. But I think that it's clear that China is uh, key, not just to Cambodia, but also to ASEAN. And that's so important. Then, given their strong ties, what outcomes or key outcomes can we anticipate from this visit in terms of strengthening China-Cambodia relations further? Well, uh, both countries, there's a joint FTA. Uh, Both countries are inside the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Um, They're both strongly intertwined into ASEAN as well. Obviously, Cambodia is a key member of that. So what the new prime minister is going to be looking to do in because what what's happening is we're having a generational change of government here in Cambodia and so there's a new impetus to go towards the new technologies to go toward digital to go towards uh, sustainable environmental uh, all of the sort of modernizations that China has uh, been chasing and uh, implementing for the last 10 years or more under the leadership of Xi Jinping. And I think that that model is, uh, Hun Mane is looking to implement that modernization model in Cambodia uh, and to sustain economic growth and to achieve uh, outcomes that has big plans for 2025 and 2030. And it's going to need China for those. And so that's what he's going to be looking for, more investment, more cooperation, more you know people-to-people exchanges. All of those things are going to be essential for this relationship. Dr. Ren, cooperation initiatives as the Industrial Development Corridor and the Fish and Rice Corridor are focused by many from both sides. Can you elaborate on these initiatives and their potential impact on economic and trade relations between the two countries? Um, Well, the Industrial Development Corridor uh, relates very, very strongly to the Belt and Road investments that have been carried uh, carried out in Cambodia, and that's been the building of highways, ports, airports, seaports, deepening the seaport, making it uh, able to take larger ships, 
new uh, there's four new airports uh, there's another one going to open next month i think in cm reap the angkor wat which is a you know one of the world's top tourist destinations so that's going to be a key thing moving forward but <clears throat> there we have free free economic zone industrial parks uh, development for manufacturing uh, so that's what the uh, the industrial development corridor is uh, and and that's between Phnom Penh and Sihanoukville um, and then you've got the fish and rice corridor because uh, Cambodia is uh, has a Tonle Sap is the world's largest freshwater uh, fishery source uh, and it's surrounded by enormous amounts of uh, agricultural in rice and fruit and vegetables and within the FTA uh, there, this is all tariff-free, and so it's a wonderful opportunity for Cambodia to be able to export uh, what it produces best in terms of food, fish and rice and vegetables and fruits, uh, like durian, for example. Uh, and uh, that, so that's what that is. That's going to be really, really good for the consumers in China and good for the producers in Cambodia. Speaking of that, uh, Prime Minister Hun Manet will also participate in the opening ceremony of the 20th China ASEAN Expo and the China ASEAN Business and Investment Summit. How do you view the significance of this platform for Cambodia's future cooperation with China? Well, as I said before, I mean, uh, the relationship between ASEAN and China is the world's number one trading relationship now. And Cambodia, uh, of course, is an integral part of ASEAN. And uh, look, the whole region is looking forward to being able to promote more growth, more integration, cross-border transactions, digitalization, all of those things, harmonization, standardization of tariffs and uh, sorry, of um, customs and tariffs and so forth, uh, better transportation, and more efficiencies. You know, there's new rail lines being built that now connect all the way to Vientiane in Laos, and that's going to go to Thailand and then down to Cambodia again, even across to Malaysia. So this this ASEAN uh, China Expo is going to is a showcase for all of the potential there, and obviously the business and investment summit is about how to keep this all moving forward. How economic development requires investment and china has been very very strong in that area but it, there's lots of other investment opportunities between the asean partners with china uh, china's support and help uh, and uh, and uh, also guidance in terms of technical guidance uh, um, advancements education these kind of things china can be very very good especially in services i think that's uh, we're looking forward to a real big boost in services Dr. Ren, in light of global geopolitical dynamics, how does China-Cambodia relations fit into the two nations' broader foreign policy objectives in the future? And what implications might this visit have for the Southeast Asian region as a whole? Well, ASEAN centrality is critical. Both China and ASEAN and all the countries in ASEAN and even the United States and Europe have declared that ASEAN centrality is the most important thing for the region. And I think that's true. And uh, uh, that forging that, keeping that very, very strong is the number one objective of all of the ASEAN 10 and for China as well and other regional partners that are in the RCEP, including Japan and Korea and Australia. Um, but America too wants to keep ASEAN centrality. At least that's what they say. Um, so <clears throat> I think uh, Cambodia is keeps a relatively neutral foreign policy. It tries to balance all of the major trade partners. It has good relations with the United States. It has good relations with Europe. Sometimes they're a little bit fraught, you know, uh, with some tariffs and small sanctions and things like that. But that has been, they've mostly been resolved. But um, I, I think that uh, Cambodia and ASEAN and China uh, understand that that essential relationship regional relationship, not external powers, but the regional powers, all not, must cooperate and work together. And uh, Cambodia is definitely understands that China is its best friend. Okay, thank you, Dr. Digby Ren, Special Senior Advisor at International Relations Institute of Cambodia, the Royal Academy of Cambodia. This is Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. 
China has released a proposal outlining its vision for the reform and development of global governance. The proposal emphasizes the importance of a shared future for mankind and calls for the true multilateralism with the United Nations at its core. Seeks to strengthen global security governance by advocating for peaceful conflict resolution and condemning actions that escalate tensions such as sanctions. In terms of sustainable development, China urges developed countries to fulfill their commitments and address global resource disparities. The proposal also highlights the importance of mutual respect among civilizations and human rights, with a focus on improving people's lives through practical solutions and educational exchanges. To delve into this proposal, joining us on the line is Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Gao. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, first of all, what do you make of the consideration timing of issuing such a proposal? What specific challenges or issues is China aiming to address? Well, in terms of the timing of this uh, Chinese proposal, it is uh, in the preparation for the general debate, uh, which will be uh, held from September the 19th to the 26th at this year's General Assembly of the United Nations. But more importantly, I think this proposal uh, was made because the international situation is becoming increasingly complicated and also is becoming very dangerous because there is a big a turning point in terms of whether the world should choose peace versus war, whether we should choose cooperation versus confrontation, you name it. And it's reflected not only in geopolitical issues, but also in terms of development. For example, whether there should be decoupling or setting up opposing blocks, whether there should be a new Cold War, for example, all these major issues are really in front of mankind. Therefore, the Chinese government's proposal is very timely and also very important because China wants to focus the attention of the global uh, community when we meet at the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York to talk about how the global governance uh, should be reformed and continue to be promoted, aimed at peace and development, respecting human rights, development of social issues, and uh, uh, building up a community of shared interests for mankind, and uh, minimize, if not uh, eliminating, any incentive to use war or conflict or rivalry or Cold War mentality in international relations. And China also emphasizes that the world we are living in today is a world of multilateral uh, cooperations uh, centered around the United Nations, and no country should be allowed to hold itself out to be above uh, any other country or the international community. Uh, we want to promote peace, and we want to promote mutual respect of all countries and peaceful use of diplomacy and other peaceful means to resolve whatever international problems there are in the world. So it is very substantively important for the global community now. Given China's position and the challenges you just mentioned, what's China's vision for future global governance and how does he envision shaping the international landscape through this proposal? Well, there are several key uh, points. One is multilateralism and multipolarity. This is very important because not only China promotes this idea of the world, many other countries also promote this idea because we do not want to accept unipolarity as the new order for the world. And uh, we want to use multilateral means to promote uh, international relations and solve international issues. Secondly, focusing on war and cooperation, rather than wasting time to prepare for uh, focusing on peace and cooperation, rather than wasting time to promote war and confrontation or agitating for war. This is also very important because it is very evident that there are countries which threaten to use war or 
want to use war to solve international issues. They agitate for war. They uh, become warmongers, for example. They promote new versions of the Cold War, and they want to uh, avoid the uh, and bypass the United Nations, especially the Security Council of the United Nations, in solving major international issues. They want to take the initiatives into their own hands, putting themselves above the international community in dealing with these issues. This is very dangerous for the collective interest of mankind as a whole. Therefore, China wants to promote this idea that the United Nations should be the core of the international order. All of the countries should rally around the United Nations, and we promote peace, diplomacy, to solve international issues. Now, the other thing is also very important, and this is truly what China has learned over the 44 years of political and economic reform and opening to the outside world. That is, you need to develop. Development is the hard truth, and there will be no development without maintaining domestic stability. And domestic stability cannot be maintained if, for example, war breaks out in the world. So all these things are connected. Stability, development, lifting people out of poverty, and preserving and protecting peace in the world. Now, this is truly a very important vision for the world. And if you follow China's vision, then you can not only see through the nature of many issues in the world of today, but also you will be very comfortable about how mankind should handle these different issues. And we want to uh, do better in many respects, in moving in the right direction. That is peace, stability, development, and cooperation among and of all countries in the world. Then, Professor, are those viewpoints widely shared by other regions and countries around the world? Do they share a sense of urgency for reforming today's global governance? Well, altogether, there are about 200 member states of the United Nations. I would say about three quarters of the states very much share China's view. I mean, the majority of the countries in the global south. And China, India, etc., we are all important members of the global south. However, uh, there is a group of countries headed by the United States, and many of them are developed countries. They do not see eye to eye on these major issues as China uh, is talking about, because it is apparent that the United States, being the largest military power in the world of today, wants to solve many international issues by using war. They believe that war should be a preferred method of solving all these issues. They want to put the United States on top of all the all the other countries. Uh, as former President Trump emphasized, America first, as if all the other countries should be last at the least. That's a very opposing view. They want to make sure that the world is a unipolarity and there is a, a unilateral uh, framework of solving these issues dominated by the use of force. And these two opposing visions for the future of mankind is right now in front of mankind as a whole. Whether we choose peace versus war, whether we promote cooperation rather than confrontation and rivalry, whether we promote friendly, peaceful, diplomatic solutions rather than the urge to resort to war and confrontation and the rivalry to maximize interests for that country themselves rather than to maximize collective interests of mankind as a whole. I think this is a very important choice before mankind, and China is very eager to project its own vision about how these major issues should be uh, handled uh, to all the member states of the United Nations in the General Assembly a debate, and I hope more and more countries can uh, make very uh, sens- sensible decisions to be on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Professor, for taking the time to provide us with this valuable insights into China's proposal on global governance reform. That was Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. This is World Today. We'll be back.
China has expressed serious concerns and a strong dissatisfaction on the European Union's decision to launch an anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electric vehicles. A Commerce Ministry spokesperson says the move is an act of protectionism in the name of a fair competition and is potentially harmful to China-EU economic ties. The spokesperson also urged the bloc to engage in dialogues and consultations to foster a fair, non-discriminatory environment for mutual development in the electric vehicle industry. To talk more about this, let's bring in Mike Basting, China Observer and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton in the UK. Thanks for joining us, Mike. No, no problem. Hello. Mike, how do you view China's response? Why does China consider this an act of protectionism? I think China's response is quite understandable and, and, and quite considered, um, given the the, the the scale of this. This investigation could lead to you know, one of the biggest uh, trade cases uh, that's ever been launched, given the size of the market. So I think China's quite justifiably uh, raising this as a real threat to uh, global trade, multilateral trade, and that, that whole approach to trade generally. And it does look as though that the language that's coming out of the EU, particularly from von der Leyen, is pointing towards some sort of um, protectionist measures that, that could be the result of this uh, investigation. So, so I think it, it's quite understandable to raise those fears now. Can you provide an overview of the European Union's decision? Because reports show that many countries led by Germany are strongly opposed to such an punitive measures, arguing that any trade conflict or any trade war could have too much to lose for the region. What do you think of the EU's insistence on such a decision? Yes, I mean, basically what Brussels announced very recently is the decision to launch an investigation, what they're calling an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles, that they claim are distorting the market, that the Chinese, on the Chinese industry side, they have an, um, an unfair uh, sort of false cost advantage and that this is making it unfair for European providers, uh, but, but not just um, um, Chinese-made, anything that's not produced in, in Europe. So it also will be looking at American-produced uh, electric cars as well. It's quite unusual that this has been brought by the European Commission itself. It's not really come as a result of industry complaints. So you say on, on, the, on the, the German side as well that they, they've actually made it clear that um, what the EU should be focusing on is making um, conditions, business conditions better for European players, players. So, for example, lowering electricity prices, reducing bureaucratic hurdles. That's really where that the Europeans can, can improve their competitiveness. And it's not really a case of losing out to what is considered to be unfair subsidies on the Chinese side. Then how might this investigation affect the European EV market and its consumers? It could have a devastating effect if the investigation concludes that the the Europe on the European side, or there needs to be protective measures protecting European producers from Chinese producers, that could lead to a tit-for-tat trade war, an escalation of costs and prices that will be passed on to the consumer, a breakdown in supply chain efficiency, uh, leading to all sorts of delays. So it could have quite a devastating effect on the market, and you know, European consumers themselves could be could be worse off, who, who are currently benefiting from um, very, very sound, uh, very well-constructed you know, Chinese uh, EV market, uh, vehicles. Speaking of possible consequences, do you foresee any potential risks to global supply chains in the electric vehicle industry as a result of this kind of protection moves by the EU? Well, yes. I mean, global supply chains, particularly when it comes to electric vehicles, are truly global. And they're, they're, sort of, uh, they're sort of interwoven, I think in and out of areas, countries, regions. So anything that, that has an effect, a negative effect in one area, let's say in Europe or parts of Europe, will automatically have a domino impact across the supply chain globally. So, so that they really are prone to uh, a breakdown in the, the sort of efficiency each, each chain will, will, will affect um, each other around the world. So, so it really is an industry where the whole global supply chain needs to be seen as as such. 
and, and, and no real interference or potential breakdown um, should allow to should be allowed to take place. Mike, China has mentioned its open mindedness and willingness to cooperate with the European auto companies in the electric vehicle sector. Could you elaborate on China and EU's deep cooperation in this industry? Will the probe affect further cooperation between the two? Well, hopefully not. And, and yes, the, the, the cooperation between the, the European automobile industry and industry associations and the Chinese equivalent is deep, is extensive, and has a fairly long history. So if we go back to, for example, 2019 in Brussels, the European Automobile Manufacturers Association, the ACA, and the Chinese Association of Automobile Manufacturers, CAAM, signed a very extensive cooperative deal, uh, which is looking at uh, many, many areas of cooperation. So new energy vehicles, harmonization of auto standards and regulations. So there is extensive cooperative agreement and, and activity uh, taking place. So, so that, that potentially is at risk as well. Uh, and on the micro side, obviously, we have a lot of links across the two areas. You know, look, the German car industry is heavily relied on China in terms of supplies and sales. So there's a lot of risk here, and this cooperative culture is something that really should be enhanced, really, and then fostered and nurtured and not really threatened with with the comments that we had recently and the investigation that was launched. Some experts say the probe marks another step in Europe's shift from being the world's largest free trade bloc to erecting trade barriers in the era of deglobalization. Do you share the same stance? What do you foresee any concerns from this change? I think it can be perceived as this. Yes, I, I think the, the, the real issue here is that, that um, Europe, particularly the EU, need to understand that competitive brands coming from outside the EU, for example, from China, not just from China, they'll, they'll be coming from other parts of the world as well, are a sign of the times. It's going to happen, it's always going to happen, it's going to increase, and it should be seen as an opportunity, not a threat. So I think they've really got to rethink where they are on the world stage and make it clear that they're open to business right across the world. And this, this era of globalization is something that really could happen. I don't think it's a conscious strategy on the EU side, but I think they've really got to just accept that the world is changing and competitive brands, in this case electric vehicles, are going to come from other parts of the world uh, and creating uh, an environment, as the Germans say, for uh, competitive uh, responses and competition from within the EU is the way forward, and that's how consumers will benefit. Thanks, Mike, for your expertise and insightful opinions. That's Mike Basting, China Observer and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton in the UK. As China steps up its final preparations for hosting the Asian Games, President Thomas Coney Askell of the International Canoe Federation says he's more than confident that participants will experience great competition in Hangzhou. In an interview with Liu Xin, Coney Askell also discussed the prospects of the traditional Chinese sport, dragon boat racing, being listed as an official Olympic event. Well, help us understand exactly what's the charm of canoe and kayak events. What makes it exciting and that's something the Chinese would love to participate more in? Uh, China is a country of water, so and that's why water sport is very popular. And the pinnacle of all water sport activities is a high performance water sport. So it's exciting. Uh, we have really good athletes who are in and out of the boats are persons which are important and and I think uh, the beauty and the diversity of our sport makes our sport so special. What do you think um, made it possible for China to be able to make progress, make some rapid progress, as you mentioned, in international canoe and kayak events, given that it you know, it, China has its own canoe and kayak events. Let's think of, you know, I'm talking about the dragon boat race, but canoe and kayak as it's known internationally was still something quite new. So what has driven China's progress over the past few decades? I can only congratulate Chinese Canoe Federation for its progress, not only since uh, 
Olympics in Tokyo. Has the Chinese Kanu Federation proven its strengths and has become one of the strongest Kanu Federation? As I said this before, in many of our disciplines. Why? This is a difficult question. Maybe I can answer in a very simple way because they did a great job, all the officials, all the coaches, to improve the strengths and performance of Chinese athletes. It's hard work and China did hard work. Well, the, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, Asian Games is coming up, are coming up in Hangzhou. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the hardware. Uh, you visited the venues in Hangzhou in March for the canoe events. I understand canoe slalom and canoe sprint. How would you gauge the readiness of the events and what are you expecting to come out of the races? Yes, I was in Hangzhou in March and I was able to see for myself the uh, breathtaking scenery of venues are uh, equipped with uh, complete facilities and I could learn more about, about the professional preparation of Hangzhou organizers. So I'm more than confident that we will experience great competitions, exciting competitions on one of the best venues I have ever seen in the world and Hangzhou is definitely one of the best venues. In terms of software, you know, the kind of readiness and servers in the judging parts, I don't know, in all the technical parts except from the, the uh, hardware aspect, uh, what is your sense of uh, what um, may unfold for the athletes from around the world during the Games? So we don't have to talk about hardware because Hangzhou has the best possible hardware on the world available as equipment on the course, but uh, human resources are very important to make for athletes a special experience. And I could learn that each of organizers who is involved in preparation want uh, from the bottom of his heart that this competition becomes a success. And I, I think that will realize our athletes as well, and they will enjoy the atmosphere in Hangzhou. Now, um, we talk about Dragon Boat. I have to make it clear that uh, Dragon Boat traditionally was a Chinese uh, watercraft paddling activity for more than 2,000 years. So uh, why does it fit in with the culture of the ICF? And what sets it into the same category of canoe and kayak instead of rowing in or other sports? Help us understand that better. Uh, we know very well that Dragon Boat has started this triumphal march around the world from China. In the meantime, many of our 175 national federations now organize Dragon Boat races around the world and bring Chinese culture closer to the people around the world. And, and I think you know it better than I, Dragon Boat is more than a sport, it's a way of life. And therefore, a Dragon Boat sport is the best ambassador for China's culture. In the meantime, uh, it becomes also a part of our ICF culture because it's simply a great sport. Uh, ICF World Cup in the frame of the Chinese uh, Dragon Boat Festival in the city of Sigui, county of Yichang City. Okay. And we had thousands of uh, teams from around the world and thousands of spectators watch this race. So it's a unique experience to organize Dragon Boat races in China. Dragon Boat at this moment is not yet an Olympic sport. It's uh, listed as an um, Asian Games sport in 2010 and at Tokyo Olympic Games in 2021, it was still a demonstration sport. So um, can we expect Dragon Ball to be eventually listed as an Olympic sport? What is your opinion of the, of the eventual prospect? I think it was a milestone to have Dragon Boat as a demonstration sport in Tokyo during our Olympic events. And we had a lot of dignities, athletes who presented, unfortunately, only to other athletes because of the COVID situation, this great sport. And I think we could attract some of the IUC members who joined this uh, demonstration event. But of course, we have to fight together to promote our sport, to make sports still better. But I already had talks with uh, Chinese authorities and I promise that 
ICF and Chinese and other federations will work together to convince the International Olympic Committee to consider one day drug and boat as an Olympic sport. At the same time, uh, my understanding is that more and more Chinese people are also interested, are also into canoe and kayak in the sense that's known to people outside of China. And China has lots of rivers and lakes. So what's your expectation of canoe and kayak events being as popular in China in the near future as in some other parts of the world, aside from Dragon Boat? Uh, you know, almost everyone has already contact in his life with uh, canoe. Uh, maybe uh, during a vacation, using a canoe for recreational activities. So you can do canoeing almost everywhere in the world. So far you have water. And that's why canoe in general is popular. And we have to use this popularity to make our Olympic discipline still more popular. And therefore we need competitions, especially competitions outside Europe. And in the past, uh, unfortunately, most of our big competitions took place in Europe and uh, the new leadership and uh, myself, we want to change the situation. And we really appreciated, for example, application from Hangzhou for our ICF Super Cup next year. So we want to bring more competitions to continents outside Europe and Asia and especially China with a uh, strength to organize big competitions is one of the best places in Asia to make our sports still more popular. That was President Thomas Koniasko of the International Canoe Federation. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.